Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. It seems like just yesterday, but on April the 7th, 2021, almost three years ago, we released the first episode of the Bear Grease podcast titled The Myth of the Southern Mountain Lion. You may remember it. Today, we're going to go back to that inaugural episode to celebrate, analyze, and if you've got a minute, I'd like to give you some backstory on the Bear Grease podcast. It's been a surprising journey for me, and honestly, I didn't think a mainstream audience would be interested in the kind of stories I was interested in telling. From the very beginning, I viewed my interests as niche or fringy, not mainstream stuff, but I seem to be wrong. We've told stories of gritty Americans who've lived their lives close to the land, of frontiersmen and hillbillies, Native Americans and outlaws, houndsmen and snake handlers, anthropologists and biologists, stories of big rivers and the complexity of soils, and deep dives with nerdy historical authors. We've told some dark stories of enslavement, murder, racism, and lies. Asa Carter, remember that? Bear Grease has been an experiment and celebration of the American storyteller. And through it, we've all learned a lot, or I've learned a lot. But I'm not sure that it's been a mainstream audience that has enjoyed these. I'm not sure that you Bear Greasers are a mainstream audience at all. I think that you're something pretty unique. And regardless of if you is or isn't, I'm shocked at the response to these stories. Telling them has been a great joy of mine, and I don't take it for granted that you, your families, and your people follow along. I want to go back to the beginning for a minute to kind of give you a peek behind the veil to the genesis of the Bear Grease podcast, when the grease was still solid fat, so to speak. When the idea of me doing a podcast for Meat Eater came up, Stephen Ranella said something to me to the effect of, Clay, I'd like to hear you interview people 
But afterwards, I'd like to hear your thoughts. It needs to be an efficient listen, kind of like a Terry Gross NPR interview. That was basically what he said. He was suggesting a documentary-style podcast, which sounded difficult to pull off. And at first, I thought I was opposed to it. Interestingly, though, years before that, I had the thought somebody should do a really well-thought-out and highly-produced documentary-style hunting podcast. That somebody isn't me. I had no interest in it. I didn't know how to make one. I didn't think I could find enough content. But mainly, I wanted to do full-length, robust interviews with people. In my past experiences, the kind of people that I was interested in talking to didn't warm up too quickly sometimes. And I knew I wouldn't get the good stuff quickly. I had to work to get that. And so that meant long-form conversations. And I felt like the documentary-style interviews were short and personal and clinical. But turns out, I was kind of wrong. After some time and some conversations with others on the team, I realized I could still have those long-form conversations, but I'd cherry-pick the relevant stuff, creating a polished, efficient listen. It was actually the best of both worlds. I remember where I was sitting in Montana, in the backcountry, when I said to somebody, this podcast needs to be called Bear Grease. Bear grease is a metaphor for things forgotten but relevant. At one time, everybody in America knew what bear grease was and what it was used for. But today, probably 1% knows what bear grease is today. And that's you. There's a lot of stuff that our culture has forgotten, left by the wayside, that I think is really valuable. And I'm interested in that stuff. To go back to the nitty-gritty of the beginnings of this podcast, which I've really never shared. Originally, I was commissioned to make three mock episodes, and I quickly put together two. When they were mixed with music and audio mastered, myself and a team listened to them. And frankly, they were flat. I lacked passion and confidence as a host. Flow and momentum were absent. They were a solid four out of ten. But for the third one, I had a wild idea to interview a bunch of different people, some that you'd never expect on an outdoor podcast. I was going to interview a psychologist, a biologist, a guy who sold hunting licenses, and some firsthand witnesses to the elusive and mythical Southern mountain lion. I'd do some impromptu interviews and some formal ones. I'd just have fun and say things the way I was thinking them. I'd forget about any templates that I'd seen, and I'd just tell the story the way it made sense. After Phil Taylor mixed the episode, The Myth of the Southern Mountain Lion, I literally clenched my fists and yelled. I was listening to it while I was on a walk in my front yard, and I yelled, that's it, that's the Bear Grease podcast. I wasn't sure if I could replicate it, though or find enough stories that were intriguing, or or even another story ever that was as intriguing as this one about mountain lions. But I was going to try. I mentioned his name before, but one guy that does not get enough credit is Phil Taylor for the actual production of the Bear Grease podcast. He's Meat Eater's chief audio man. He works extremely hard to put the audio magic in each episode. Thank you, Phil. And in celebration of almost three years of making Bear Grease, I want to go back and replay that episode, the first one about mountain lions. 
To this day, I get more interaction around this first episode than any other topic that we've covered. My online life has basically become a service for people to forward pictures and stories about mountain lions, and particularly black panthers. I speculate with great certainty that I have filtered more Black Panther images than anyone in America in the last three years, elevating me to a self-titled but unashamed and humble position of the Black Panther czar of America. That's right, you heard correctly. I have an automated response to everyone that sends me a picture of this said Black Panther, and it goes like this. Thank you, sir or madam, for your interest in the North American Black Panther. I'm very interested in your submission. However, upon further review from our team of one, me, I have concluded that your image is, number one, not from North America, or number two, is a black cat that you've completely misjudged the scale of it in the photo. Number three, it's a black dog with an odd tail. Number four, you've fallen prey to an internet Photoshop Black Panther scheme. Or, lastly, number five, confirmation bias has eaten your lunch. Your granddaddy didn't see a Black Panther. I'm sorry to crush your dreams, but you're a grown man and you should have known better. That ain't no North American Black Panther. If you've listened to this episode yet, this will all make more sense to you. So without further ado... Here is episode one of Bear Grease, originally played on April 7th, 2021. How certain are you that you saw two mountain lions? 100%, no doubt. Have you ever seen a lion, mountain lion in Arkansas? No. I think there's panther. I think there's black mountain lions myself. On this episode of the Bear Grease podcast, we'll be exploring the myth of the southern mountain lion and how the lore, or maybe the hard science, we don't know which one, has forever and inextricably connected itself to southern culture. We're going to talk to some mountain lion believers, a biologist, and even a psychologist to get some answers about lions and about human nature. Well, I mean, I don't have any proof of it. I just always have heard that. You've heard, so you've heard of... Uh, Cognitive, disc- I mean, I've just believed the propaganda. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant. Search for insight in unlikely places and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. Presented by FHF Gear, American-made, purpose-built hunting and fishing gear that's designed to be as rugged as the places we explore. There are two kinds of people in the South, those that have seen mountain lions and those that haven't. Both of these groups carry their own unique stigmas, perhaps both equally as wrought with irony as the other. They seem to huddle tightly in cult-like clans of believers and unbelievers. But to understand the tension between those who've seen mountain lions 
and those who haven't, and yes, there is tension, you'll have to understand a bit of history. The mountain lion, Puma con color, is a large tan-colored feline weighing up to 200 pounds or more. It, along with the jaguar, which are extremely rare and primarily live south of the U.S. border in Mexico, are the only large cats in North America since the extinction of the giant cats of the Pleistocene, which basically was an epoch of time that ended about 10,000 years ago. These Pleistocene cats included saber-toothed cats, American lions, American jaguars, the American cheetah, This place used to be crawling with giant purring predators. However, today we've pretty much got one large cat in the United States and Canada. The old mountain lion, or puma, or panther, or the painter, or the catamount. All the same animal, but they have different names in different regions. You might recognize one of these. But the mountain lion's native range extends from the Canadian Yukon all the way down to the Andes Mountains of South America. And from the east and west, its range goes from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean. This is fascinating. They are the most widespread terrestrial mammal in the Western Hemisphere. To bring it home simply to North America, prior to European settlement, they had the widest geographic spread of any large mammal, more than white-tailed deer, more than elk, more than buffalo, more than anything. And herein lies our issue in 2021. They used to be here, but by the turn of the 20th century, mountain lions were extirpated from almost 100% of their eastern range in the entire eastern deciduous forest. The word extirpated means that they didn't go extinct, but they were removed from a specific region. The eastern deciduous forest basically extends from East Texas all the way to Maine, and from Wisconsin all the way down to Florida. Basically, it's the eastern one-third of the United States. It's worth noting that mountain lions in southern Florida held on and were never entirely gone, perhaps making them the only mountain lions east of the Mississippi for a very long time. Or were they? Have they been in much of the eastern deciduous forest all this time, just right under our noses? A lot of people think so. But for sure, throughout the 20th century, mountain lion populations only survived, according to science anyway, in the rugged, mountainous regions of the western U.S. and Canada. Though lions haven't been in the south for the last hundred years, or at least that's what the government biologists tell us, lots of people still see them. In fact, I know some of these hillbillies that aren't afraid to stand up against the statistics and against the science and boldly proclaim their eyewitness convictions. Some might even call it conservation slander. The myth of the southern mountain lion is so strongly embedded into our culture, they might as well actually be here. Or maybe they are here. Maybe they've been here all along. The only way that I know how to get to the bottom of this is to hear some of these stories for myself. And some of these stories are pretty close to home. Just for the record, I've never seen a mountain lion in the south, but my dear sweet dad... Gary Newcomb has, and here's his story. 
When was it? Tell me when it was. Oh, I would say 20 years ago. Yeah. 15, 20 years ago. I was going to say late 90s. Well, yeah, probably. Probably. And I was in one of my favorite hunting areas, driving on a warehouser road. But then I looked to my left, and when I turned my truck in the middle of the road to make that turn, I looked up there, and there was what I thought was a bobcat. I thought, that's a big old bobcat. Is it? Is it daytime? Yeah, yeah. It's late. It's later in the afternoon, late but still afternoon. real clear light. I mean, it wasn't like dusty or anything. And I, I thought big bobcat. And then I saw the tail, and I go, "Holy cow, that's a mountain lion!" And you know, it was hundred yards. You know, it was pretty good ways off. That you saw a distinctive tail. Distinctive, no question about it. So, what color was it? <laughs> I want to say blue. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was just a tan colored animal. Really? Yeah. I mean, like, okay, so you're my dad, and I inherently trust your judgment. You've been alive seventy two years. Yeah. How certain are you? If you if if there was a way to tell, I mean, like, if there was really a way to know whether it was a mountain lion or not, and your life depended on, it, how certain are you that? Uh, it was a mountain lion. It would be 100%. a mountain Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know what has a tail that yeah. was as long as the body, it seemed to me like. What did it do? Was it stand in the road and then ran off? It, it, it took its time, came across the road. By the time I saw it, it was pretty close to the ditch. And it, it, and if if I remember correctly, it looked at me. So it didn't just dart across no, the road? No, no, no. It was moving slow. So you got a it, good look at it. Yeah. And so, uh, but I didn't catch it from over here to here. I caught it towards the, you know, just maybe two or three steps from the ditch, and then it just eased off in the ditch and then went into the cutover, you know, 10-year-old cut. And uh, when I saw the tail, you know, I, I said, I'm just thinking mountain lion, you know. I mean, it's just, I mean, what, what has it's a tail? It's that simple. Yeah. Brent Reeves would be considered a hillbilly if he didn't live in the Arkansas Delta or the swamp country. Regardless of semantics, he's a close friend of mine, a veteran outdoorsman, and he's been in law enforcement for the last 30 years. I've only known him to stretch the truth on occasion, and he claims to not just have seen one mountain lion, but two. I'll let you judge his story. So Brent, tell me about not one mountain lion, but two mountain lions that you've seen in Arkansas. I will gladly relate the following. The first <laughs> one was probably in 19, I'm going to say it was in 88. Me and three other guys were working for a private uh, timber management company. And we were in Ashley County, Arkansas, which is in right next to two counties away from, from Mississippi in southeast Arkansas. We were driving down a timber company road, going to manage some timbers, probably nine o'clock in the morning, good daylight. And a panther, mountain lion, cougar, whatever you want to call it, jumped out in front of our truck at about 30 yards and loped down the road in front of us for 20, 30 seconds. And we're right behind it. And it ran off into a section of timber that we drove down another quarter of a mile and went in ourselves to to cruise the timber to see how much timber was in there. That was the first one I'd ever seen. And mm-hmm. we got back that afternoon. There was no cell phones or anything back during that time. So when we got back to the office that afternoon, 
I called a uh, friend and we then reported to the game and fish and we got a call back. I think the next day that they had had reports of that in the area and actually attributed it to one that had escaped captivity. Mm. And so it was, it was known at the, in that area to, to be rambling around. And so that wasn't the only mountain lion you've seen. You've seen another one. How'd that go down? My friend, David Boudre and I were going coon hunting one evening. Now, this would have been. Is that even it, a real name? It I is. Mean, it story's is. getting fishier and fishier. It is. It is a real name, and he can attest to it. But but David and I were going coon hunting uh, one evening in Cleveland County, where I grew up. And it's dusky dark. You don't have to drive with your lights on. And we were driving next to this this big clear cut, fresh clear cut and there was two or three big trees that weren't merchantable for logs or anything so the timber company left them out there and this tree was probably it was a big white oak tree it was probably 150 200 yards away from the timber access road and we're driving down through there it's in the fall of the year so the leaves are are coming off pretty good and i look out there and i can see a silhouette of what i thought was a turkey and i told david i said david look that big old turkey sitting on the limb out there and he said, yeah, I see it. Well, I had my coon hunting light on. I just turned my light on to see if I could see if it was a gobbler or a hen. And when I turned it on, the eyes were glowing back at me, which turkey's eyes don't normally do that. And we slowed down, and David said, man, that's not a that's not a turkey. And we slowed down to look at it, and it turned, started walking down that limb, and you could plainly see that big, long tail out from out behind it. That thing walked down towards the trunk of the tree, got to where the the limb leaves the trunk of the tree, put his feet down there, paused, and just dropped down into that clear cut. And then we turned around and went back the other direction and turned our dogs loose. <laughs> Let me ask you this. On both of these sightings, mm-hmm. now 30 years later, if your life depended on it and there was a way to know the absolute truth, and they said, they're going to burn your house down if you're wrong. <laughs> How certain are you that you saw two mountain lions? 100%, no doubt. And the thing about it is, both times I had a witness with me. Of course, one of them was a coon hunter. I'm going to need their phone numbers. (laughs) One of them is a coon. I say was, one of them is a coon hunter, and they, you know, he's not vaccinated against lion, but I'm telling you, no, no doubt about it. I'll let you be the judge of whether you believe these two stories or not, but I've got somebody that has the credentials to validate them or take away all their credibility. I'm not sure which one it'll be. Myron Means is the statewide large carnivore program coordinator for the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. If there's an expert on mountain lions around these parts, it's Myron Means. I think he can give us some insight into the facts of whether the mythical mountain lions of the South are real, or if they're just a farcical relic of folklore passed on from a time when they were actually here. Myron, when I first met you 10, 11 years ago, you were the Arkansas bear coordinator. Mm-hmm. Black bear biologist, that's right. And and now you're not. Your, your title has changed. What's your new title with the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission? Uh, my new title is Statewide. Large Carnivore Program Coordinator for Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. Okay. That's a mouthful. So 
something happened because uh, at one time there was just one large carnivore acknowledged by the game and That's fish. Right. That's right. And your title change, which indicates what happened. Well, long about 10 years ago, right after I took the bear program coordinator position, uh, we started seeing mountain lions in the state. Mm. And uh, it's not that they weren't seen prior to that. It's just that, you know, we didn't have, there were very, very few ways to uh, document a sighting. I mean, you know, if you think back historically, People didn't have game cameras back much in the 80s, you know, and that's something that's kind of come along in the past 15 years or so. But anyway, what basically what happened was mountain lions started showing up in the state uh, from time to time. And uh, Game and Fish recognized that, you know, you need to have someone that's kind of coordinating the sightings, coordinating the verifications uh, and just kind of packaging Right. The mountain lion stuff. So it's not necessarily that now there are lions here and there weren't before, but we're, we just know about them. Is that what I'm hearing you say? That's right. That's right. You know, for a lot primarily of years. Primarily because of game cameras. Primarily because of game cameras. Or, you know, if someone has one like on a phone video or something like that, but it's primarily been the game cameras. Uh, that's really what has helped us, you know, document the occurrence of mountain lions in the state. So here's here's the question. Where yep. did they come from? Because bears, mountain lions, this would be historic mountain lion range here in Arkansas. Absolutely. And in all of the eastern United States. So where did our lions come from? Well, that's a, that's a million-dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? The only evidence that we have currently was from a mountain lion that was shot by a deer hunter back into 2016 now that was harvested or shot in Bradley County by a deer hunter. That mountain lion was also previously documented on a cache in Marion County about two months prior to that. So Mm. that would have been in, uh, that was in 2014, I'm sorry. Uh, So the DNA evidence that we collected from that cat in both instances uh, told us that number one, it's the same cat, uh, told us that number two, that cat had origins from the South Dakota population. Now, Uh. that doesn't necessarily mean that cat was born in South Dakota, it just means that its DNA origins came from that South Dakota population. Now, if you think of it in terms of where would it most likely come from? Well, there's established mountain lion populations in the Dakotas, South Dakota. Uh, Which would a, be an ast- north and west of us slightly, primarily yeah. north, but still in the Mississippi River drainage for the most part. Well, it'd be kind of, uh, it'd be probably closer tied to the Missouri River drainage. Gotcha. Uh, there's an established population in northwest uh, Nebraska. Mm. There's an established population out in the panhandle of Oklahoma. There's an established population of lions in the panhandle of Texas and in southern Texas. Mm. So, I mean, uh, and of course you have the Florida Panthers in Florida. So those are really the uh, the closest, quote, established How, how many? Well, that would be 500 miles from here? Closest. You know, the closest population would probably be the Panhandle of Oklahoma, you know, out in the Black Hills area. Uh, but is it likely that those cats would move all the way across Oklahoma? Probably not, because the 
travel corridors and the habitat just isn't there. Mm. Is it likely that a cat could move out of the Dakotas across northern Nebraska uh, into eastern Nebraska and hit the Missouri River drainage and follow the Missouri River down through the Ozarks of Missouri and then into the Ozarks of Arkansas and then go who knows where else? That's probably the most likely. So you, it's almost like highways, like yeah. habitat highways. Like you could, it is. You could track mm-hmm. good lion habitat all the way back to the Dakotas and Nebraska. Sure, sure you could. I mean, you know, there's going to be some spances of maybe 100, 150 mile, maybe even 200 mile gaps. Uh, but you have to think in, in travel terms, you know, that's something that a mountain lion could do in a day or two. Yeah. Myron, what about captive lions getting out? Because I remember growing up in yep. western Arkansas, you'd hear the odd person say mm-hmm. they saw a lion, and it, it, it was always thrown back up on captive. They said somebody had right. a captive lion, and they let it yep. loose. What do you think of that? Yeah, and matter of fact, you know, that was really kind of the official, I guess, position of the agency through the 80s and 90s that more than likely – if someone saw a mountain lion, more than likely it was the result of an escaped cat or some a cat that someone couldn't care for anymore. They were moving. Maybe the owner died, maybe something. And so what are they going to do? Just turn it out. So that was really kind of the official position of the agency for a couple of decades. Mm. Uh, that more than likely, if you saw a cat, it was probably a released cat or an escaped cat. You know, that takes all the fun out of seeing a mountain lion. Well, it certainly <laughs> presented a lot of gotcha opportunities, you know, for the agency uh, for a long time. Back in the early 2000s is probably when the agency started turning around saying, well, more than likely, rather than being a escaped cat, because a lot of those captive breeders kind of fell out. You know, when I was a kid Regulations up, got more regulations, difficult to keep cats. Yeah, and it just wasn't the thing. I mean, I could remember, believe it or not, when I was a kid, I knew two people that I went to grade school with. Hmm. that had pet mountain lions. <laughs> I mean, you know, so... Right here in uh, Western yeah, Arkansas. so, I mean, back in the 70s, you know, it wasn't that odd of a deal to, for someone to have a mountain lion as a pet. You know, we still have no proof. Uh, a lot of people try to play gotcha all the time with us and say, well, Game and Fish says that, you know, we don't have mountain lions. Well, you know, we've never said we don't have mountain lions. What we've said for the past 40 years or plus years is that... We don't have any evidence of an established reproducing population of mountain lions. And has that changed? No, still has not changed. We still don't have evidence of a breeding population of mountain lions here. we do not. Well, let me ask you this. Do you feel like today in Arkansas there are mountain lions that are living here year-round? I think there are mountain lions that live here year-round. I think virtually all of the mountain lions that we have documented sightings of over the past, uh, well, since 2010, I feel like they're all males. Mm. You know, either young males or older males. A lot of the picture evidence translates to them being older males. I'm not talking really old males, but uh, mature males. And that would be very characteristic of an expanding population of large carnivores mm-hmm. whether it be bears it would be. or lions you That's would start right. to see these fringe areas that would start to get satellite sure. males mm-hmm. yeah and uh you know a lot of people don't realize with mountain lions is that you know you're you're talking about a young animal that gets pushed out of the population a young male that basically gets uh kicked out on the streets 
you know, that's not something that they're just going to travel another 50 miles down the road and establish, a, you know, a territory of their own. I mean, you're talking about animals that have no qualms about traveling hundreds of miles in order to find a suitable territory that has food, cover, and females. Well, in the absence of females, they're not going to establish a territory. I mean, it's just that simple. Mm -hmm. So when you think of the behavior that takes place in these animals, they move into, say, if they did come from the Dakotas, they move into the Missouri, they go down the Missouri drainage, they're starting to mature, they're no longer six months old, they're a year old, they're a mature male. Uh, so there are a couple of things that are driving that young mountain lion to exist. One of them is food, and the other one is reproduction. And until he finds both of those, He's not, not going to set up shop So anywhere. he's looping down into Missouri and going back, probably. He might be going back. He might, might just continue to keep going until he does find a female. And whether that means he has to cross four or five, six states to do it, they'll do it. Wow. In the 1990s movie Dumb and Dumber, Jim Carrey, when he's confronted with the fact that his girlfriend is leaving him forever, and she gives him an inkling of hope that perhaps she'll come back to him, he says, So you're telling me there's a chance. I feel like what Myron just said in talking about the dispersal of mountain lions and their ability to travel such long distances gives some credibility to the lore of the southern mountain lion because we have an established population of lions in southern Florida and then in the west, and it would not be unheard of for lions travel that distance so maybe there is something to all these mountain lion sightings regardless of the fact that many of these sightings could have and very well may have been captive lions released that people were seeing ready to win mother's day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Nukem has an Aura frame, and we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are Really good, really high quality. The Aura Frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR. B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's auraframes.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Montana Knife Company was founded by Josh Smith, one of the world's most experienced master bladesmiths. He's been making knives for 30 years. Made in the USA and manufactured locally in Montana. The knives come with a multi-generational warranty and free sharpening. Designed, tested, and built by hunters, MKC is a hunting knife company first and foremost. 
They have the sharpest knives out of the box and the easiest knives to sharpen. And that is the dadgum truth. You better be careful with them when you get them. They are sharp. MKC is a fast-growing company. They just hired their 55th employee and are looking to hire about 50 more in the next year or so. I've carried a lot of these Montana knives, and the one that I like the most is their Speed Goat, which is a lightweight hunting knife, just the right size. MKC knives sell out within minutes of being released. So head over to MontanaKnifeCompany.com. They have new knives for sale every Thursday at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. So check their website and sign up for their text and email alerts. That is the best way to find out when they have knives available. Use code BEARGREASE10 for 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the south. The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence, but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the Onyx Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com slash hunt this spring. So do you, do you foresee a time? Like with the, so with the, with the habitat structure that we currently have yep. between here and these populations, mm-hmm. do you forecast a time? It might be 20 years from now, 50 years from now, five years from now. I don't know. Will we have a established breeding population? Because what would typically happen, as I understand dispersal of these large carnivores, is like the males start making these satellite loops, and then at some point, females. You know, like right. at some point, we're going to get a picture of a female in Arkansas. Well, you know, Missouri came up about four, I believe it was about four years ago, and they collected some hair uh, off of a confirmed sighting. They confirmed that it was a female. Mm. Uh, The experts that I have talked to about mountain lions, all of them have been pretty consistent in saying that if you do have a female in a geographic area, a male will find her. It's just a matter of time. When you do have a female show up, you will have a breeding population. What I want to kind of talk to you about now is like mountain lion folklore, mm-hmm. essentially, in places where there historically haven't been lions in the last hundred years. So in Arkansas, we have Ozarks and Washtaws, which would have these big, vast sections of public land yep. that would be, for all of our deer populations, would be less dense populations of deer than on private land. Yep. There's less deer in the mountains than there are in these agriculture areas and oh, civilized yeah. areas. Well, it seems to me that there is a unorthodox shift in mountain lion folklore in these like backwoods <laughs> places. And I'm like, well, there's not enough deer there. Like there, there's, there's not enough game for these animals to be living. Like I think people would have this idea that a mountain lion, if he was living here, he'd be living way out and, you know, 
XX Mountain, which is far back in there. But what we're seeing with these lion sightings that you guys are confirming is that they're not necessarily in the backwoods. They're in places with higher deer density. Is that true? I think that would be the natural place to set up a, a territory. Yeah. Exactly along the lines of what you're speaking of. I'll give you an example. Custer, South Dakota is a very, very small mountain town. And if you look, a lot of the mountain towns up in the Black Hills, you know, they're very small communities in the lower portions of these valleys with road highways running through them. And when you drive through them, you can see the edge of town. You know, up on the side of the mountain over there, you can see it to the left and right. And when we were driving through there, one of the houndsmen that I was spent some time with, he'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, mountain lion took a Labrador from that guy's house right over there. And we'd go down mm. the road. And, well, that guy was had his truck parked up at this, you know, this bar or whatever it was sitting on the edge of town that you could see up there, but it's on the edge of town. Well, he came down and drug a deer out of that guy's truck, you know. And he's down. telling me all these stories. And, uh you know, mountain lions just don't have that secretiveness to them that I really thought they did. I mean, hmm. I thought they would stay, you know, a hundred miles away from a civilization or whatever. And and really, they're not. It kind of cues back into what you were saying. They're gonna they're gonna go and they're gonna set up shop where food is available, where it's the easiest, and where there's the most of it. Would it, it might be, be more natural town. for a mountain lion to set up an area that they're going to stay in a territory in the heart of the ozark national forest or would it be more likely that he set up in a territory on the fringes of national forest probably more likely to set up a territory on the fringes of national forest but you're still talking about an animal even in prime mountain lion habitat you're talking about an animal that has home ranges of you know 100 plus square miles so let's talk about where lions have been seen in Arkansas mm-hmm. and how you guys determine that one is a sighting is valid. Describe we that to me. We get probably 150 plus sightings uh, that people contact us a year. Now, of those sightings that we're able to have physical evidence of, whether it be a track, whether it be a game camera photo, whether it be a phone photo or video, whatever else, something that we have physical evidence that we can go out. We take a field investigation form. We go out on any sighting that has physical evidence, and we'll record it. If it's a game camera photo, we're going to record where the picture was, You know whether it was yes, verify that it was taken from this camera at this spot. You have background. Yeah. You're doing everything. Uh, Yeah, you're doing an investigation to verify that, A, you know, it was a mountain lion. B, it was taken at this location because there's a lot of internet hoaxes going out there. You know, this this mountain lion was taken at a friend of mine's friend's uncle's, you know, best cousin's whatever camera last week. (laughs) Comes out that it's been floating around the internet for six years, and it was, you know— I was going to so. say that if the Game and Fish gets 150 sightings per year, <laughs> I know about 50 of those guys, and I can tell you, they're full of it. <laughs> but uh, what boils right down to it for the last decade or so, the amount of sightings that we have been able to verify, and hold on to your seat, the amount of sightings that we have been able to verify per year averages to about one. Wow. One to two sightings per year that we're able to verify wow. and say, yes, that's without a doubt a mountain lion. What 
is your personal feeling on all these other sightings. And just because someone can't verify a sighting doesn't mean that it's not legit. It just means that they well, didn't have Well, it just means a, that us as a, as a conservation agency or a scientific agency, I mean, you know, we can't, I can't go out there and say, well, we've got 100 mountain lions in the state because we've had this many sightings. I mean, yeah, I, I you can't. you got to have evidence. i got to have evidence of it. i got to have proof of it. I mean, you know, we don't just go out there and on on a whim and and say we've got this many bear this many deer so what's your gut about all these other sightings are people wrong or are people right and it's just not verifiable i think about 98 percent of the sightings that we get are misidentification what are they seeing uh you'd be surprised at the amount of video or uh picture sightings that are sent to me every year and i'm not talking about three or four i'm talking about tens 50 60 you know maybe more pictures or videos that are sent to me every year that are house cats house cats you mean to tell me that people are mistaking house cats for mountain lions A 15-pound cat versus a 150-pound cat? Believe it. Feral house cats are estimated to number 70 million, maybe even more. They're everywhere, and people don't understand scale often when they see an animal or get a picture of it. The biggest misidentification is by far and away uh, domestic house cats or just feral house cats, house cats in general. Uh, I do have a lot of bobcat pictures that are sent to me, even videos of bobcats. And, you know, there's some anatomical features that bobcats possess that house cats or mountain lions don't possess. One of them, of course, is the obvious, the bobtail. But I've seen a lot of pictures where a hind foot actually looks like a continuation of a tail. And then you look up at the head of it and you see these big, huge white dots on the backs of the ears, which are specific to bobcats not mountain lions mountain lions don't have white patches on the backs of the ears okay here's the here's the question of the hour okay okay i've found living in the south mm-hmm. living in arkansas there's two kinds of people yeah there's people that have seen mountain lions <laughs> and there are people that have not so myron means taken out of his position at the arkansas game and fish commission have you ever seen a lion mountain lion in arkansas no Good. Thank goodness, Myron. (laughs) I wish I had, but you know, I mean, uh, you know, I tell people this all the time, the amount of people that have seen mountain lions and everything else. I mean, if you think about that, it's, it's, it's a lot of people. A lot of people claim to have seen them. And uh, I'm not here to tell anybody that they didn't see what they thought they saw. We're up to like uh, since 2010. We're up to 19 verified 19 sightings. verified sightings mm-hmm. in the last 10 years in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To understand why people so badly want to believe in mountain lions, we're going to have to understand a bit about human nature. Dr. Richard Back has been a clinical psychologist since 1979, and he has some unique insight into why humans act the way they do. Dr. Back, of the of the hundreds, if not thousands, of mountain lion sightings that people would have claimed over the years to have happened here in Arkansas, and the actual number of verified sightings being so small, 
why do people why do people believe that they've seen a lion when statistically they probably actually didn't well there's probably two things going on there one is that it's kind of an exciting thing to think is possible and if people have any sort of belief established already you know whether they've uh, read articles on mountain lions or that an uncle or grandfather talked about the mountain lions if there's some connection somewhere and the person probably can't even identify where it was but if it's an established fact that there are mountain lions then <laughs> when they see something that uh, can be fit into that perception they'll they'll t- they'll tend to do it and then you can't talk them out of it no matter right. what you show them and they are really uh, confirming what they already believe or picked up somewhere. Is there a psychological term that would describe somebody that had a belief that may not even be true, and then something no. happened, and they slotted that event that happened into a belief that wasn't real? Is there is there a psychological term for that? Yes, it's called confirmation bias, and it's just uh, practically uh, every person has it, but is unaware of it and would certainly deny it if you ask yeah. them. It's all over our lives, I guess. Yeah. It's all over our lives. We end up believing things, not even knowing where that comes from in terms of what we think is the best model car or the best football team or the best state to live in. We end up believing that, and we couldn't really even probably voice reasons why. We just like that. And then we cherry pick any sort of evidence, whether it's from newspapers or, or sports announcers or neighbors, but we cherry pick in terms of selecting information that supports what we already believe. Yeah. So it would be like really reasonable if if you were a young child growing up and somebody that you respected or maybe somebody you didn't respect told you that there were mountain lions here, regardless if that was like patently false you would probably go through your life with a slot in your mind that there are potentially mountain lions here. So if you saw a flash of brown fur across the road, that might just easily slot into that place and it just be fact inside of your mind. Yes, uh, yeah, that would happen. Can you tell me about naive realism, what that means? Yeah, naive realism is, uh, I guess, in a sense, the foundation of confirmation bias. Naive realism is really kind of a uh, fancy term for what I think we've probably all noticed, and that is almost everyone else we deal with thinks that they're right. (laughs) Uh, And that's because most people do think and believe that their way of perceiving the world uh, and interpreting data and selecting and making decisions, uh, we all believe that we've come up on the right way of living life. So it's like you could be living just kind of, you could just kind of have this false reality. Yeah. Well, yeah, lots of people do. And if anyone tries to convince them that they have a false reality, then they fall back on confirmation bias to really ignore anything they're saying that disputes what they believe. And that, but they'll select all sorts of data does support that confirms their bias. That confirms their bias. This is a great place to hear a story that actually happened. 
Scott Brown is my longtime good friend. He's a veteran woodsman, and I trust whatever the guy says. You're going to get a kick out of this story. But I want you to ask yourself, which character in this story are you? So, you know, where I, where I work, we sell hunting licenses. And usually the first, the week right before modern gun deer season opens, it just gets really busy. So I'm back there one night, I'm helping out and just trying to help them sell licenses. And a guy walks up and he says, hey, I need to buy a license. And I said, okay, no problem. I said, uh, what license do you need? And he said, well, I just need the, the big game license, the annual big game license. And I said, okay, no problem. And so I asked for his driver's license and I'm, I'm plugging in his information. He says, well, that license allow me to kill one of these. And uh, I said, well, what is it? And he shows me his phone. He's got this picture on his phone. And when he shows it to me, it is without question a bobcat. <laughs> I mean, it's it's without question a bobcat. I've seen a lot of bobcats, and it, I'm a hundred percent certain it was a bobcat. It had speckles right. on its belly. I mean, it was. Yeah. It's a bobcat, no question. Yeah. And uh, I said, it's yeah. A trail camera picture. Presumably. Yeah, it's it's a trail camera picture. Something yeah. he had on his trail camera there around his house somewhere. And I said, yeah, sh- yeah. You can shoot bobcats, coyotes. It'll allow you to shoot all that stuff. And when I said that, he was just. I mean, he just snapped at me. He just said, that's not a bobcat. And I said, oh, it, it wasn't? And he said, no. And he kind of hands the phone back over to me again. I'm thinking maybe I made a mistake. So I look at it again, and I come to the same conclusion. It is a bobcat. I mean, there's just no question about it. And, of course, you know, I didn't say anything. I just said, yeah, yeah, sure enough, you know, just kind of blew him off, you know, as if he wants to believe that, he can believe that, I suppose. Well, it gets better. So as as he tells me that, there's three or four guys waiting. And they're, they're they're standing around us there waiting on us to, you know, so they can get a license. And the guy goes, did you say you had a mountain lion on camera? And the guy says, yeah, yeah. So he kind of turns his phone around and shows this other guy, and it kind of draws a crowd. And there's three or four guys there, and they're all like, oh, man, sure enough. You know, it's a, it's a big mountain lion. Look at that thing. And they're all just handing it around there. So in a, in a span of about one minute, he had convinced five people standing back there mm. that he had a mountain lion on camera, and every one of them believed it and had no trouble believing it. The only person in back there that thought otherwise was me. <laughs> and, it was, and it was because it was clearly a bobcat. And I mean, you were like, this is how it starts. Yeah, and I thought, man, this is how the legends and the myths and all these things you hear about people seeing mountain lions get started it just takes one person to see one now all those five guys they left went wherever they went for the rest of the day and told how many people they saw a mountain lion on some guy's game camera and then thus there's a mountain lion around and everybody's seen it when actually only one guy saw it it wasn't even a mountain lion now back to myron do you want to delve into the black panther myth yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. I meant to say that. In the South, particularly, Myron, you hear this, you hear people talking about Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Like, I, with my own ears, have heard mm-hmm. countless grown men that I believe to be like rational thinking people mm-hmm. tell me that they've seen Black Panthers. What's the deal with that? Well, I'll speak in scientific terms of Black Panthers. <laughs> we can't have this discussion without talking about Black Panthers. 
My oh my, what a topic. Before we start, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in Black Panthers in North America? If you do or you don't, I guarantee you, you know some people that do. And they're probably normal, maybe even successful humans. I want you to think about that for a minute. I was shocked when my own father told me this story. When I was a kid, we'd go to Bucksnord, Aunt Allie and Aunt Ollie. They weren't Aunt, they were Aunt. Aunt Ollie and Aunt Allie. And then you'd go down to Ollie's house, and she had the dog trot. And you'd spend the night down there, and you'd hear a panther scream every now and then. Now, do you... Okay. I don't... To be honest with you, I would be afraid that it was this cognitive disconnect where Lewin had talked about it so much, and they talked about it so much that when you... But I mean, when you were there, it was like, in this place, you can hear panthers scream. Oh, man. That, and and when, like you drove, mind. when you drove into Bucksnord... It was like if you were a city boy and guys like you and I that have a heart for the outdoors, even as a little kid, I mean, it would just be so exciting. The trees were over the road. And when you pulled up in Aunt Allie's house, the yard was all sandy dirt with doodle bugs everywhere and this big old dog trot down the middle and a big old porch across the front. And June bugs, we'd always catch June bugs and fly those June bugs and we'd doodle bug and then... At dark, you know, occasionally these stinking panthers would scream. Or, you know, mountain lions. I think there's panther. I think there's black mountain lions myself. <laughs> do, do you really? Well, I mean, I don't have any proof of it. I just always have heard that. You've heard, so you've heard of... Uh, Cognitive disc. I mean, I've just believed the propaganda. You. So you, you have, like, you're 72 years old, lived in Arkansas your whole life. You believe Is that. this thing on? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not worried about you believing that. I'm just trying to get to the root of where that comes from. Hey. Who told hey, you Hey, about hey, hey, when, when, I, when I was a kid, uh, when, when you'd have a group of kids around and your favorite aunt would be there and she would it would say, hey, tell us a story. And they'd go, well, you know, there was this little family and when they were, you know, they were walking home one night. And all of a sudden, they looked around, there's a black panther, and they'd take the booty off the baby. And, you know, those stories, that just was all through my so they're, childhood. They're just always there. Yeah, you know, throw a booty off, and then the diaper, and then the shirt. And then all of a sudden, you pitch <laughs> the baby back, you know. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, but I'd hear, I'd hear adults talking about black panthers. Now, back to Myron. People for generations have called panthers, mountain lions, catamounts, cougars, uh, lions. They're all the same animal. You know, they have a whole litany of common localized names that people have called them. Right. But when it comes right down to it, they're all mountain lions. They're all right. the same animal. There's panthers. no other species in North America of big cat. No. Currently on the landscape. Well, not in the United States anyway. Well, jaguars down in right. South America. Or- the only animal, large cat, that has known to exist or have occurrence for a melanistic color face, which is a, quote, black color okay. face, are two of the large cats, jaguars and leopards. Okay. Mm. 
So there has never been a documented melanistic color phase of a mountain lion in history. Mm. Okay. So not broke, even in the just, not you just even broke in some the, people's hearts, Myron. <laughs> not even in the Smithsonian Institute. So uh, if you think in terms of black panthers, what most people are calling black panthers are black mountain lions, and uh, scientifically, the animals never existed. I think a lot of it is folklore. I think a lot of it is. Uh, misidentification folklore you know uh things of that nature and uh i mean is it is it plausible that a large black cat a jaguar or leopard could never occur in arkansas it could if one of two things happen either a it escaped from someone's cage somewhere Mm. and it was a jaguar or a leopard or b you had maybe a jaguar move up from Central America into Arkansas. Which is just not plausible. Uh, you'd probably have just as good a chance of seeing an ostrich as you would a black, you know, yeah. jaguar. I have a lot of people, you know, that, that get mad at me. Well, you're trying to tell me I didn't see it. No, I don't try to tell anybody they didn't see what they think they saw. Or someone they know didn't see what they think they saw. I just stand on the on the scientific facts of the issue and uh, the scientific fact behind the whole Black Panther deal is just that uh, that particular animal does not exist or has never been documented to occur in a melanistic color face, a black color face. Believing and trusting people is part of the community structure of humankind. It's part of what separates us from the animals and what's made us biologically successful as a species. If we doubted everything people said and demanded proof of everything, we wouldn't have made it past the difficulty of our archaic past of slinging rocks at stuff and huddling in caves. Blind trust in our fellow man is evidence of our humanity, And deep down, I believe that we want to believe people. Deep down, we want to trust our brother or sister. If there is any good in the folklore of the mountain lion and the Black Panther, it's found in the social mechanics of wanting to believe the best of your neighbor and taking your friend at his word. Perhaps we need some more of that in today's time. Though mountain lions were certainly gone for the large part of the last hundred years in the South, wouldn't you know it, the truth has swung back around and found us still sitting here believing. Mountain lions are back. And this is a conservation success story, but it's also a story of how the truth, though temporarily labeled as folklore, and it was, has once again been found as truthful. Mountain lions are here, and maybe they always have been. And if anybody ever doubts that Gary Newcomb or Brent Reeves did not see a mountain lion, I'll punch them in the teeth because I'll believe those two until the day I die. Long live the beast, and long live the good word of our brother and sister.
After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. 